Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for spending this time together. I can hardly wait. We've got Guide Talk coming up in just a minute or two. And then my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington, will be with me in the second hour. We're going to talk about Jerusalem in hour two. It's going to be a great show, and I hope you are doing well. And it is a beautiful day in the Twin Cities area, and there's a lot going on in Minneapolis right now. Boy, oh boy. We might talk about that a little bit, because that is a lot to process and it has been a national news story for the last uh, night or two, so I'm losing track of it. But I'm losing track of time, period. It's Thursday, right? I'm good. <laughs> Everyone's just nodding at me like, <laughs> you should figure out what day it is, boy. All right, let me take a little break, and we'll start God Talk. <laughs> you know the story about Jesus feeding the 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish? Just seven pieces of food had exponential impact in the hands of the Lord. Hi, Neil Stavum, manager of Faith Radio, asking if you would be one of seven people available for God to use in our ministry today. You see, we're almost fully funded, and we could reach our budget need with gifts from just seven people a day between now and the end of our budget year, June 30th. A Team 360 gift, that's our most common giving level, amounts to $30 a month or a dollar a day from seven friends today and over each day through June 30th would mean full funding for Faith Radio this year. Full funding means more effective ministry, and more ministry means lives changed. So would you be part of the Faith Radio story as you give what you have so God can multiply your gift to bring about changed lives through this ministry? Make your gift today online at MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks. Welcome to the show. Hope your day is going well. Thanks for being with me today. We've got a guide talk happening, so you know the drill. If you have a question you'd like us to cover, let us know what it is. 877-933-2484. Power panel today is Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Hey, Bill. It's nice to, to have, be here. It's nice to have the whole band back together. Justin, we missed you a couple of weeks. Yeah, hey, I've, missed, I've missed you guys. Yeah, it's great to be back. Yeah. As I said at the top of the hour, there's quite a bit of chaos going on in Minneapolis. And uh, Tom Parrish, you had a couple of thoughts about what was going on relative to uh, our country and our city. And he's not there. (laughs) Hey, Tom, are you there? I'm here. Oh, okay. You sound quite muffled, by the way. Huh. I just went to the telephone and called in on that line. Okay. Through the airport. Same way. I'm wondering, what's wrong with my iPhone? All right. We'll figure it out. Uh, but I do want to bring up uh, the kind of the national news story that's been all over, and that is, of course, what's going on in Minneapolis. And it is uh, it is tragic, really. makes me very sad, and I am just curious as to what your thoughts are. Yeah, you know, Bill, it's it's hard to process, isn't it? I mean, it's happening just a, a couple of miles away. It's one thing when you see these news stories, and they are away from you. 
and and you maybe see sort of a passing interest in what's happening and obviously you sort of chalk it up to the ongoing racial tension that has been happening for decades and decades, even since the, the, the founding of our country. But it's right down the street like this. And and you see the anger and understandably so. That That's a pretty graphic video that was yeah, being put out terrible. there. I, I couldn't even bring myself to watch it because I, I knew the content of the video and the the disturbing nature of it. I don't know that you should watch it or shouldn't watch it, but either way, when you see just that visual image of a person being pinned down underneath yeah. the knee of a police officer, you can understand why there's the reaction. The question becomes is what is the solution and how do we lead towards an actual reconciliation? I don't think it's hard to identify the problem. I right. think it's much harder to identify a what is the solution and b who can lead us towards that kind of solution. And I don't know. After the, the 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 flames sort of fan out, which they will mm-hmm. in this situation, because we've seen it happen before. But can we actually lead to a more sustained, peaceful kind of community? I don't know where the voice is right now that's helping us do that. Yeah. Anybody else have a thought? Yeah, I agree with uh, with Peter too. I think it, there's a sense of um, you know uh, there's so much happening so fast, and it's kind of just keeps. Uh, kind of cascading forward and uh, of course surrounding the context of a, of a global pandemic it's been so interesting to see and tragic to see all of what um, this pandemic has surfaced you know you, you look at the the anti-asian racism that that is still going on but that first service we um, you know we see the Ahmad Arbery incident and then um, so many it's, I, I, I don't even want to start naming them because I know I'm gonna miss something because there's so much happening but I think it, it for me, it's it's pointed to just trying to be honest with the the reality of 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 wickedness and evil, and to to grieve, to get angry, but to um, allow that anger to really truly be rooted in a love uh, for my neighbor, and to um, you know really engage in the messy work of justice, and um, and so. Yeah, like Peter, it's like what 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 is the step forward? And and for me, I mean, it's it's the it's the step forward of truly committing this to to prayer, getting into prayer with with others. And um, we had a, a student life gathering yesterday here at Northwestern, just over Zoom, praying um, a couple days ago, pr- praying over this. And um, not as a not as a band aid, right? We can just kind of say, well, we'll pray about it, not as a virtue signaling, but truly as bringing clarity to what's the step forward, but also how to sustain a movement forward so this doesn't just become a flash-in-the-pan response, but it becomes a, a, a all the more a united and a concerted effort to see um, justice, which really is in the heart of God, begins in the heart of God, to see that come to fruition in our city and our country. Mm-hmm. Anybody willing to pray for our city right now and everything that's going on? Yeah, I'm sure, I'll be glad to pray. Go ahead, Tom. You pray. Lord Jesus, you know our city's in trouble. But, Lord, it's more than just the city. It's our whole nation. In many ways, Lord, we have abandoned you, and we ask your forgiveness. We need your power and your presence. Raise up leaders who will speak the truth, Jesus. Raise up leaders that people will listen to. Raise up your word in such a way that people's lives will be changed. Bring comfort to the family of uh, George Floyd. Bring comfort to the family of the policemen. They know. Their lives are over the way they understand it. And in many ways, they have brought this on themselves. But, Lord, we've all brought this on ourselves in so many ways. So forgive us. Help your church to be alive and to speak the truth, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tom Parrish. Tom Brock, any other thoughts you had on that? Well, you know, um, boy, I'm wondering if I should say this. Probably not, though. I was, 
not, well, I mean, I don't want to be critical of, of the mayor of Minneapolis, but he was so showing his outrage on TV. And then they cut to a black activist who was call, calling for calm. And I thought the black activist did a much better job. And, you know, the, the video was horrible. And I still want to say it's always safe not to rush to judgment. We don't know exactly all the stuff that was going on. And I'm not excusing anything, but my guess is that the, that the policeman that did this, it was, my guess is it was not in his head here, let me kill a black man and I'm a white man. You know, I, I, was conscious racism going on in his head while that was going on? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, but I just I think we need to not rush to judgment. And I was happier to see what the black activist said yesterday on the news than the white mayor of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So those are my, those are my thoughts that maybe I shouldn't have said. <laughs> No, I think it's fair, uh, Tom. There's just so many different voices in this story, and I was I was noting Collar and Kaepernick uh, reappeared out on Twitter here mm. today, and, and I, I think what I noted that caught my attention is that um, he was saying we're not interested in resting in peace; we're interested in resting in power. Uh, rest in power, my brother, is is what he said, and. I thought about that, and I thought about the, the very understandable response when people have experienced depression, when they have experienced um, uh, an, an unjust, violent reality in their lives, and, uh, and the systematic racism that is part uh, of sort of some of our country's history as well, that it is understandable to want to rise up in violence and in power like Kaepernick was asking for today. And yet when you look at the leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. and all of what he stood for and all of what he did, no less a victim of the racism of anybody in our country today. And yet somehow he went to a different place and he understood the pathways of nonviolent resistance. And he understood that hate begets hate is what he would say. And, and violence begets more violence. And if we're not careful, we continue to do that cycle until we sort of des- to descend into a night that is devoid of the stars. And, and we head into this darkness together. And so I hope that there can be some public voices that, that do have the kind of charisma to lead people in a different kind of way to be able to say we, we absolutely reject that this kind of behavior is acceptable in our country, and yet can we possibly meet that behavior with love? Can we meet it with nonviolence? Can we meet it where we still actually care about the oppressors as much as we care about the oppressed and everybody needs to come to the cross together? There's very few voices out there that are saying that, and if we listen to the voices of the Kaepernicks uh, of the world, that it's just one, you know, contest of power against the other. We're just going to end up in this ceaseless sort of cold and sometimes hot war that we have going on in our country. Yeah, good point. All right, let's take a little break. We'll be back with more Guy Talk. Let me know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. Maybe you've got a verse in Scripture. Maybe you've got an issue you'd like us to talk about. We're here for you. Again, 877-933-2484. us today it's guy talk and it's the whole hour so let us know what your questions are or your concerns 877-93 faith uh here's a question in james it uh, talks about in chapter five that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective if i said boy tom and tom you guys have been pastors for 40 years does that mean that your prayers are going to be more effective than 
someone who's only been a Christian for a year? No. <laughs> no, not at all. What is, what is, yes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, I'm glad he called those two guys out. That's I great. Know. Yeah, Me Tom, too. we're yeah, still waiting, Tom and Tom. They, it's the advantage of being the young guy. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> what it comes down to is not the, the length of time. It is the submission to the Lord that's the whole thing. And I think righteousness is not something I produce. It's something I submit to. And I think somehow when we talk about the prayers of a righteous man, what we're really talking about is a man or a woman that has literally given up on themselves, has turned totally to the Lord and says, Lord, I am here to do your will and let your will be done. And quite frankly, very few of us pray that way. We have conditions. We want to tell the Lord what to do. We want to control the outcome. Mm -hmm. And we need to be righteous in the sense of giving up. And the more I give up, the more powerful things I see happen in my life and the life of others. I like that answer a lot. Mm -hmm. Tom Brock, you have something? Well, I mean, just I remember that if you want something to happen, get the old white-haired ladies of the church praying. <laughs> and we we used to have a prayer chain at my church, and just, boy, I would use that. And just the, the prayers of the righteous really, uh, me, I, I mean, we got to explain this. Nobody's righteous. We're all sinful. We are made righteous or declared righteous because of Christ's death. So even though I don't feel righteous, and in one sense I'm not, nevertheless in God's sight because of Christ I am righteous. And I think the people that are living that righteousness out are the ones that get their prayers answered. Um, so, yeah. Justin? Yeah, I think, along, I think alongside <laughs> of that, I mean— you know, right there, that, I mean, that's the second half of, of verse 16 in James 5. You know, the first half is, we, we've quoted it before on the show, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So who are the, who are the people that are is talking about the prayer of the righteous? It's, it's those that are praying for one another. It's those that are confessing their sins. So I think there's a, I think there's a direct relationship between um, our lifestyle of having a conscious awareness of our sin, of repenting of that, confessing that in community, and then praying for one another positions us in that posture of humility. That's what Tom was saying, that, that, that righteousness isn't something that we achieve, we receive it. And, um, and I think the 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 humble person who confesses their sin on a regular basis is is aware of their need and um and it's that it's that humility that i think that bends the ear of god in in a unique way yeah, I heard recently, Justin, somebody, uh, a pastor saying something to the effect of that humility is, is what brings us close to the face of God. And, and that idea of righteousness, insofar as I understand it, means that you're plumb, that you're, you're standing upright and plumb and, and in the, the right posture between you and God. And, and that posture is one of humility. It's one of gratefulness. It's one of uh, the pathway to God's kingdom is always through the pathway of brokenness and admitting that we don't have what it takes. And, and in those places, we begin to experience a certain kind of power within the kingdom that God begins to grant. I heard Dallas Willard once say that Jesus is looking for people to trust with his power. And the people to whom Jesus trusts his power, those people that are righteous, they're upright in the sense that they're, they're plumb in their relationship with God. They're, they're walking it out in authentic humility. They readily confess their sins. They are quick repenters. They, they turn quickly because they don't want the reality of sin winding through them, all of those things. So Bill, when you ask the question, a righteous person, a righteous man, unfortunately, I think sometimes that the people 
who, for all intents and purposes on the outside, look like they've got it all together. It could be the pastors, you know, Tom and Tom, and they've been in ministry for 40 years and all of those sorts of things. But I think, Tom, you could, you could justifiably say you can be in ministry for 40 years and not hardly have ever tasted the kind of righteousness we're talking about right now. Exactly. If the righteousness of Christ has been gifted to us through the, the grace and salvation, that we there are then our righteous people who are doing our, the praying, right? Yeah, and to receive that, it requires humility, right? I mean, that's oh, the only way, so. you know, it's, yeah. it's so that's, I think, our best effects, uh, so says the Old Testament, are just like filthy rags. If we try to attain that kind of thing on our own, it has to be in this received partnership of the work of Jesus through the life of the Spirit that is made uh, known and manifest to us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's helpful to remember the distinction between the imputed righteousness of Christ and the imparted righteousness of Christ. The imputed righteousness is that God counts me righteous even though I'm not because of Christ's death on the cross. He imputes it to me. I'm, I'm a sinner, but God takes Christ's righteousness. God, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God imputes me and calls me righteous for Christ's sake, even though I'm not. So that's called the imputed righteousness. That's what saves me. But then there's something called the imparted righteousness of Christ, that he actually starts to clean my life up and impart his righteousness to me. And that's an up and down thing. And that some days I'm doing well and some days I'm not. The imputed righteousness always saves me. The imparted righteousness, though, does need to come out in our lives to a degree or we haven't been imputed righteous because it's always proved uh, to a degree anyway by being lived out in our lives. The verse that really hit me hard on this is Philippians 2, and you know the passage. It talks about uh, Jesus emptying himself, becoming nothing, taking the form of a servant, and then he was highly exalted. And as I look at my life in Christ, I'm not called to make myself powerful. I'm not called to make myself famous. I'm not called to make myself the center of attention. I'm called to become like Jesus, which means the more I think less of myself, not in a uh, humanistic, you know, negative sense, but understanding who I am in Christ, and the more I seek his glory, then I believe there's more power, and those prayers get answered. Interesting answers. I appreciate the, uh, the responses. Thank you very much. Another uh, listener jumped in with a question. This probably comes back to the earlier thing we discussed. In the context of constant and repeated murders of black men and women, what does justice look like? You know, I think that's the question, Bill. It's, it's, it's part of what I was circling around in that first segment a bit and was um, interacting with some people today about that is, is it's not, I don't think it's difficult to see the issue. I, I think you'd have to be pretty tone deaf and blind to not see some of the issues that are, that are there clearly. I think the trickier part is, is who can both identify the solution, articulate that solution, and be able to lead people towards that solution. Um, what does a reconciled society look like? What does a reconciled community look like? How does it function day in and day out? We, we desperately need leaders, whether they're within the government, whether they're within the church, some combination of both, that, that have the visionary capability of being able to articulate that, because otherwise we're going to end up in this constant cycle that we've been in for years, which is what I was suggesting earlier. Um, this event will spark the protest, and it'll probably carry on for about a week or so, and then it's going to go beneath the surface again, and then it's going to happen again in another city in the world, and then the same pattern will repeat itself, and nothing will shift. And in the absence uh, of a visionary leader or leadership that can articulate the solution, to the listener's question, all of that is to say, 
I don't know entirely what the solution is in terms of what a society can look like that is flowing in a reconciled way where relationships are filled with justice and righteousness, the things we're talking about, because we've, we've just had such an absence of leadership in the church and in our society for quite some time in these kinds of ways compared to maybe some past ways in which people led. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a very you thoughtful know, yeah, I think Martin Luther King Jr. didn't just appeal to justice. matter of fact, he hardly really talked about justice as we understand it the way it's defined today. He talked about the change of the human heart. Yep. And, you know, he's a Christian. Uh, he was a pastor. But he was able to go into the public forum and talk about what he wanted for his children, what he wanted in his own heart, what he wanted in his own behavior. Because, Peter, you're absolutely right. This is going to go away after a while, and then it'll be repeated, and then we'll be hollering about justice again. There isn't enough justice to make up for a lot of the sins. What will make up for it is literally when people's hearts are changed toward one another, mm-hmm. people start repenting before one another, people start serving one another, and we quit looking at one another as just black and white or yellow or brown and start looking at one another as created in the image of God. And I would say, too— well, Go ahead, Tom. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that we. What, I think we all need to pray, Lord, remove my blind spots— because my thought is the sin of the 1800s in America was slavery, and there were Christians who owned slaves, but they kind of had a blind spot to the fact that that was awful, you know. Today, I think the sin of America today, I think, is abortion. And some of the people who are so emphatic that we need justice for what's happening right now with the racial issue don't some of the same people would be heavy defenders of abortion. And so we just need to pray, Lord, help me not have blind spots and show me, you know, not justice, not just for this person or that person, but for the 3,000 babies killed every day. So we, I think we all need to pray for God to open our eyes and, and help us be consistent. Yeah, I, along with that, I think that kind of confirms some of the same thoughts that, and connecting back to our last statement, I think in order to have a right understanding of justice, we need to first understand righteousness. And, you know, that idea of, I've been reflecting lately just in, in the reality of prayer, you know, God's call, God's throne is called a, a throne of grace that we can come boldly to. And my, how do we need that more than ever um, during this time? But it also says in Psalm 97 too, that um, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so that idea of, uh, I liken righteousness is, is to being right, that, I, that, that my being, who I am, my heart is in the right place, as Tom was talking about, and then justice then is connected to my doing, that my doing right. And I'm reminded of a kind of an anecdotal story that a mentor of mine told me of a father um, and a son, and he, the son, the young boy came up to him and as the father was at the end of a work day and he was reading the newspaper and he wanted to just have a moment to relax and his son wanted him to play. And he said, okay, he found a picture of a map of the world and he tore it up into a bunch of different pieces, gave it to his son and said, you know, put this back together. And when you're done, then we can go outside and play. And so he thought he bought himself, you know, you know, a lot of time, but within a short few minutes, his son returned back and had it all patched together. And he said, how did, you know, he's like, you're too young to understand geography. He said, well, how did you, how did you do this? He said, well, on the backside of the picture of the world, there was a picture of a man's face. And uh, the idea of, well, once I get the man right, you get the world right. And so mm. I think it does, that righteousness speaks to that heart issue of, of our being, and that justice speaks to the, our, our doing. And so I think we always have to 
keep those two in grace is what I think holds those two together. All right. Um, well, so we need to take a little break. We'll be right back. But, you know, if you've got a question, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. Guide Talk is happening. 877-933-2484 with your questions or your uh, issues or whatever it is you'd like us to chat about. In Matthew 18, verse 3, it says, and, uh, and he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to become like little children? If I remember right, the parallel in, in, in Luke or Mark, I can't remember which, it, it makes it more clear. I, I could be wrong on this, but I think it's the parallel. It says, unless you humble yourself and become like a, a little child, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's the humility of a child, I think, that Jesus was referring to. So that was the quality of, of a child? That's just that humility? I think so. Okay. Yeah, Tom, it's actually right there in Matthew. I think it's also true about the parallel, but that verse 4 in Matthew 18, it does say, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mm. You know, I think the childlike humility, um, you know, I think what comes to my mind, too, and I think what maybe Jesus was was, was getting at was um, just the, the really the inherent dependency that a child has upon another. And um, I think when we, we recognize and declare our dependence upon Jesus as our king, the king of the kingdom— um, there's that, that kind of um, embracing of our own weaknesses, of our own limitations, and recognizing our desperate need um, of Him moment by moment. Mm. I think, too, uh, sometimes I think about my own kids at very young ages, but just children in general, that if they uh, have lived in the kind of environment maybe where they, they haven't had a lot of relational pain or they haven't had those moments, whether it's uh, uh, teasing on the playground or bullying at school or maybe coming home someday and having their parents say, uh, Ma, you know, your mom and I are going to split up, or some of these things that are so entirely painful. Generally speaking, when kids come down on the stairs in the morning, they come down the stairs without fear. They, they're excited for the day. There is, um, there is no concern about their future. And, and I think about in God's kingdom, right, which this passage references, uh, God's kingdom pulsates with love. It is, it is the central characteristic of God's kingdom, and perfect love casts out all fear. When you know somebody entirely has your back when you know that your future mm-hmm. is accounted for and, and you don't have any concern or worry about that because you're living within an environment um, where you're entirely cared for, then you can just have the freedom to dance. Your eyes can twinkle with delight. Um, you're not worried about how you look. Uh, all of the sorts of things that we sort of learn, obviously, as human beings through relational pain and struggle, we start putting up our fig leaves with one another. We start wearing our, our masks with, with one another Kids, before they experience those kinds of relational pain, they, they do. They just, they just dance for no reason, and their eyes just twinkle mm-hmm. again with delight. And, and I think when we understand with humility and surrender our lives and our future to God and say, you know what, you have my back, I don't have my back anymore, um, you have my back, in that place, it doesn't mean that life is suddenly going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you are not going to catch some um, horrible coronavirus. It doesn't mean that uh, that tragedy isn't going to strike you, but you know that you live within a kingdom 
where the central king of that kingdom always has your back and, and that your future is always accounted for. And so you can begin to live with a sort of freedom and peace and joy and, and even dance in the midst of trouble and, and have your eyes twinkle with delight even when things are difficult. And it's not victory through denial. It simply is, hey, my future is accounted for. And and uh, and I am uh, surrendered to a God who I know will always uh, be there for me and for my wholeness moving forward. Peter, that brings to mind uh, my, my son, Bennett, just turned three. And uh, we... Uh, Every single morning now that, you know, I've been able to be home and work from home for the last two and a half months, you know, there's not a single morning that he wakes up, you know, by himself, you know, gets up and kind of does his own thing and doesn't really care about what mom and dad are doing. He <laughs> he either wakes up every morning crying for us because maybe he he forgot where he was or didn't know what was going on, but then he's calmed when we come in or he he uh, he wakes us up calling out for us. And often he we we, we are woken up by him singing. Just mm. at the top of his lungs, and and the this phrase that comes to my mind of that he, that I hear almost every morning now. We got him this little visual alarm clock so that when the light is red, he's supposed to be in bed. You know, the side on the pillow. <laughs> and, and when it's and it's amazing how well this works. We're so grateful for whoever invented these. And then when it's green, um, we usually we hear in the morning. It's green now. Let's go. And and uh, and he rushes in with it and shows it, and he's so excited. And I think it's like, gosh, if I could wake up in the morning singing mm. and approaching this day of like knowing that my father's right there with me, waiting for me to wake up and to spend time with me, um, I think it speaks to that. I don't know that unadulterated joy yeah. and dependency that Peter was talking about. Yeah. It's remarkably inspirational. It is. It is. All right, gentlemen. Here's a question from a listener. I'm by no means perfect in following God's law. However. His commands and laws are in place to be obeyed. How do we convey this to everyone in a loving message? Well, I think it goes back to some degree, Bill, that what we were just talking about is that what is your initial perception of the God of heaven? Is the initial perception that God is sort of this frumpy being in the sky who's always demanding your sort of obedience so that he can have his own glory or something along those lines? Or did God put ways of life in place that are simply for our good. It's no different than the ways of life that we put in place for our children that are for their good, that they can experience the fullness of joy and, and the passion and the beauty and the wonder that is this world. And so if you start with an idea of our father in heaven is mostly against us and kind of tolerates us, that's a different reason to obey. We obey because we want to try to avoid his anger. Uh, that's different than wanting to obey because your way of life, God, is much better than my way of life could ever be. And, and you're gonna, your, your desire for my life is the fullness of joy and freedom and, and to be able to dance with delight, some of what we just talked about. So how do we do it in a loving way? Well, I think it starts with how you communicate who the Father of Heaven is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how Scripture always connects, connects obeying God's commandments with loving Him. That's the way that we love Him. Mm-hmm. You know, and Jesus said in John fifteen ten that if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments as I abide in His love. So that idea of abiding, that being with, that commandments, is following His commandments, His ways, is truly the pathway for the abundant life that only Jesus as our Good Shepherd can provide. So I think the, the motive of our of, of obedience is, is love. I think when most of us hear about commands, the Ten Commandments or the other commandments, we get nervous because we think it's something that's a burden where Jesus turns it around and turns it into a source of freedom. That when we really understand the commands and therefore our good and the good of others, and we do it out of thankfulness, we get some real freedom. 
And therefore, we don't run around on our spouses. We don't lie to others. We don't cheat others because we're thankful to Jesus and we're doing it because it gives freedom to those people and freedom to my conscience. And think of the first sin. God had told Adam and Eve not to eat off that tree for their good, for their eternal good. And Satan got them to think, God's a killjoy. He's trying to rob me of something. And that today is still, whenever God tells you not to do something or to do something, he has your good at heart. But I've got this evil flesh I was born with who tries to tell me, you know, God is robbing you of fun. If you would do this, if you'd look at that, if you, whatever it is, that's where your joy is going to be. And then you do it and you kick yourself because you've been fooled again. Mm. <laughs> so we, get, we have to keep up, uppermost in our minds that the commands of God are for, for my good. God wants me to have fun. That's why he doesn't want me to sin, because sin will kill me. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And you, you just referenced the idea of lying, too. I mean, how many of us, whether you're believers or not, you could have a simple conversation with somebody and say, you know, just how awesome is lying for your relationship? Are you, are you just thrilled to be in a relationship that's characterized by deceit? I mean, anybody can recognize how harmful that that is. And so when you start with those kind of premises and say, um, is this way of life actually good for your relationship, for your heart? Do you sleep easy at night? All of those kind of questions. It becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that God's commands are not meant to be a burden, uh, they're, they're the pathways towards freedom. All right, here's another question. Um, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. How do I do that? Is that something that you have to do every day? Is it something that happens at the point of conversion? When you come to faith in Christ, you then have the full armor? How does that work? I like the old hymn, put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. It's stand up for stand up for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And you don't have, I don't think you have to do this every day. I do it a few times a week. I pray the armor on myself. And this is all out of Ephesians chapter 6. First of all, put on the uh, belt of truth. And then whatever truth I need in my mind that day, I'll say, okay, God, I put this belt on. I I gird my loins with truth. I put in the breastplate of righteousness. Yes, Lord, I am righteous in Christ. I shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Lord, let me share you with one other person today. I take up the shield of faith with which I can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. I kind of picture that. I take the helmet of salvation that, yes, I am saved in spite of what Satan and my guilty conscience might tell me. I put on the helmet of salvation. I am saved. I take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and then pray at all times in the Spirit, and, and you pray. I, I, I don't think you have to do that every day, but I think to do that regularly, to take uh, either memorize it, uh, that portion of Ephesians 6, so you can do it without opening the Bible, or open your Bible to that, and put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer, and I think that that's something we should do regularly. I like that. That's a speaking truth to yourself. God's yeah, word. That's right. It's important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of, uh, I love that, Tom. And I don't know if she was singing this song, but when uh, I'm reminded of my, my late grandmother who passed away a few a few months ago now, she used to tell me um, that this was a part of her daily routine when she woke up and just kind of her morning routine of getting ready, of showering, you know, putting on her robe or clothes, you know, as literally as she was putting on her belt, like everything she would kind of think through you know, even our morning routine would build this in of putting on the armor of God. And I think really what it's about, 
Paul talks about just two chapters earlier about putting off the old self, putting on the new self, which is created after the, the, the likeness of Christ. And that idea of remembering um, who we are, what God has done, and all that we have and all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ is key to the ongoing daily renewal um, that's necessary for our sanctification. And so if I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, I need to remember what's true and really proclaim that truth, pray that truth over myself, um, whether it's every day, whether it's in the morning and your morning routine like my grandma <laughs> or whenever it is, but it's important to have it as a consistent aspect of, of our daily lives. I think most Christians struggle with this because they don't know who they are, first of all. You know, when Paul used the Roman armor, he knew who a Roman, a Roman soldier was. He's Roman, mm-hmm. and he would wear the armor, and that's what he put on every day. We have to have the clear identity that we are the children of God, anointed by Jesus. He is our Lord and Savior. And as we put on the armor, we're putting on the armor that befits who we are. This is who we're meant to be, people who do, you know, seek his and walk in his salvation, people who do stand up for his word, people who do, you know, stand up for righteousness. And I think most Christians, though, struggle on them. Most young people that I know can't figure that out, you know, who they really are and what does Jesus really mean to them. And I think it's something we've really missed in the church, this identity of who I am in Christ. Well said, Tom Parrish. All right, let me take a short break. Uh, more Guide Talk on after the break, 877-933-2484. Again, my power panel today is Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson. We'll be right back. the show. Thank you for listening today. And I've got some great input from some listeners. Uh, a great listener, I think in the Kansas City area, um, talking about the um, topic we started with, and that is that it'd be nice if we had, um, you know, uh, uh, some black Christians uh, joining another discussion. And so, yeah, I would want to say if there's, you know, even a, a listener today who wants to jump in with us, We'd love to hear from you. You can just give us a call. We'll patch you in. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Because uh, as we talk about justice for black and black women and men who are getting murdered, um, we are uh, doing our very best to discuss this, but uh, we're a group of white men talking about it. Yeah, it's, and I think that's so important. That idea of just the contextualization of things, Bill, you can only walk a certain amount of, of feet in another people, uh, person's oh, shoes. I know. And I, you know, the, the pastor who married Hallie and I some 25 years ago is a guy by the name of Raleigh Washington. He's an African-American inner city pastor. And I, and I had a chance to speak with him yesterday a little bit. And it was, he was able to say some things that I probably wasn't even thinking about at the time to, brought, so, to bring some further perspective. We all need to be at the table. It's not just one person's table. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has to be at the table because all of our perspectives are limited on this. But, uh, but if, it's only, if that table is only filled with one skin color or one right. group of people in power, it's always going to be limited. So I think the listener has a, a really important point there. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. so appreciate I Yep, so appreciate that. All right. Um, and if anyone does call, we'd love to hear from you. That would be great. 877-933-2484. 
I love this passage out of Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now, it's possible you can hear those within the Christian community as well, can't you? Oh, sure. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, can you? I mean, Tom Parrish and I. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. Let me, let me back up and start over. <laughs> let me pretend I didn't ask that question. All right. All right. <laughs> let me direct the question specifically to Justin Jepson. Do you have a thought on that? I'll, I'll zip my lip. Okay. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Justin, do you have a thought on that? Uh, I'm just looking it up. Uh, <laughs> Colossians 2.8. Yes. I mean, yes. Do I think it's possible? I mean, in the short, yeah, absolutely. And I think we, I think we do see it, um, you know, and, and this idea of um, being, being captive. Um, like, uh, and again, I think when, whenever there's a, you know, we're told in scripture elsewhere, I'm thinking in, you know, first Timothy three, that, you know, many, many at the end, at the end of the days, their love is going to grow cold. They're going to be led astray. They're going to accumulate for themselves, you know, uh, teachers just basically to kind of tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. And, um, and I, and I think that, um, this is why it's so true that, I mean, we need to preach the word in season and out of season. Um, and so, and I think, I don't know, this idea of being, captive about something is what am I really preaching? And Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ. And, and so, and I think um, to the degree in which a, a church is, is not doing that and not pointing people to Christ and, and all of the various beautiful, diverse expressions of how that's manifested in the context of a local congregation, then um, yeah, we're going to be captivated by a lot of different voices out there. And so I think it's it's building in the knowing the word, letting it dwell richly in you, as Paul says in the next chapter, so mm-hmm. that you're able to discern the voices and truly what's, you know, because I think, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, if we don't have the word of God living in us, then we're not going to be able to discern what, what sounds good and what's actually God. You know, I worked with an older pastor for a while. He made a very good point. We were talking about this very passage many, many, many years ago. Here's what he said. He said, do you ever go duck hunting? I said, well, yeah, when I was younger. He said, how many dead ducks did you shoot? I said, what? Yeah, how many dead ducks did you shoot? I said, well, none. You don't shoot dead ducks. You only shoot live ones. He said, precisely. And where is the devil going to be shooting except within the church, at the teachers, at those that are bringing the truth? And if you can get them off the mark in some way or lead them in the wrong direction, he can lead everybody astray. And that has never left me that thought. Wow. Hmm. And I think what what scares me even about the passage a little bit is that I would believe that there would be people who would be intentionally doing what that passage says, that they are actively trying to lead people astray. But I think it's entirely possible that uh, we can be led astray and, and we're not aware that we're teaching things that are inconsistent with God's kingdom. And I know just in my own teaching journey at university and in the pulpit at times and, and along the way, uh, certainly in my 20s, I had everything dialed in. I mean, anything that I said was 100% consistent with the kingdom, right? And, <laughs> and and you sort of learn along the way, well, hang on a minute, maybe that humility piece of it, that that I just have a piece of this. And and um, when you're in that place to acknowledge that, uh, that you may not be able to articulate the wonders of God's beautiful and expansive kingdom on a one-to-one relationship, even just using English, English language to do so, it, it calls you to a bit of humility. And what it invites you to is exactly what that passage says, 
is that you're never going to go astray if you if you stay within Christ crucified. I know that is true, and he has been risen. And when you stay in those central places, you can go some other places in that, but you're starting with that place of humility. And, and I think God then is also faithful response to you with increasing wisdom and discernment, and he does begin to trust you with, with some of power and authority in your kingdom. But it's entirely possible to, out of a good heart, I think, be teaching uh, hollow philosophies, and, and we need discernment to be able to see what those things are. Oh, you're absolutely right. Hmm. All right, here's another question from a listener. Can you help uh, listeners understand how to become free if they have been captive, captive to hollow and false teaching? There's a good question. That's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Glad I'm doing the asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, this well, is just a, a springboard. You know the truth and the truth will set you free. Say that one more time, Todd Perry. We, we really want to help people focus back in on the truth. And I think what Peter is talking about, and it ties in with this gentleman, here's the problem. Most of us are not consistent with the Bible. We don't have a consistent theology. In other words, our theology should be the same from Genesis to Revelation. But it isn't in most cases. And you can watch people jump all over the place. I think most of us that have been captive and are now out of that and want to stay free uh, literally have to start building a consistent theology. Who is Jesus? You know, what part does he play in this whole biblical scheme? You know, who am I in the midst of this? What does the Bible say? And the more of that we can do and discuss that with others, I think the more consistent we can build our theology. And I think, too, one avenue of getting free of false teaching that you grew up with or you dabbled with is to get with another Christian and renounce those teachings. Uh, You know, sometimes when people do deliverance ministries, they will have them out loud say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I renounce Ouija boards, I renounce um, uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or whatever it was that they dabbled in or lived in for years, with another Christian to verbally renounce it in Jesus' name, that can be very freeing. All right, Justin, did you have a thought? Yeah, well, I was going to go to, to John 8, like that, that Tom did, you know, you'll know the truth, and the truth will will set you free. I think it, it does it. And again, but that, 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 uh, I feel like I'm just kind of reiterating what, what's already been shared, but that's crucial that that happens in the context of community. And while, while I think there, um, you know, it does, it does go back to, um, you kind of need to be replanted to, so to speak, you know, and then Paul says right before the verse that was mentioned by the listener that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, says that, therefore, as you receive Christ uh, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, uh, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so it's really, then, you need to get into and under and with um, true biblical teaching. And um, there's a change of diet that needs to occur, so to speak, before then uh, there'll be a change of of lifestyle and of your mindset. And um, so I think that... I feel like I'm just kind of spinning the record of what already has been shared, but I think I, I agree. You need to get into the truth, into community, and um, and get reestablished and get replanted. Mm-hmm. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Um, do you know what it feels like to feel that the Lord has rebuked you? 
Yeah, it's been the last 40 years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I mean, the Lord has really worked hard on on making me turn around and rethink and redo things. And and he's not a bit afraid to let my world fall apart if it needs to in order for me to become like him. Yeah, I I mean, I can think of some times just in the last couple of months where God was pounding on me about some things that, uh, and justifiably so, but I think it goes back to what we said earlier, do we believe that the Father is for us? And if we believe the Father is for us and for our freedom and for our ongoing growth in Christ-likeness, then you can enter into that Hebrews 12 passage and say, hmm, the discipline is never fun, but if you know that the Father is for you, actually, then you know it's serving a good purpose. And it's still hard to, to willingly submit to it, right? But at the same time, uh, you can do more so as you see the Father who is for you doing that work in your life. Mm-hmm. You ever just, some, go ahead. Sometimes I, sometimes I pray the prayer. God, help me discipline myself so you don't have to. <laughs> so, good luck. Yep. Anybody else in the closing no. moments? Well, I think part of the problem is, that? and I hear it from a lot of Christians, they've been clobbered terribly in life. Yeah. Their spouse mm-hmm. has cheated on them. Their son or daughter has been in trouble with the police. Their daughter has been raped or somebody's been murdered. And I've seen a lot of that in ministry. And they don't have any good answers for this. Why would the Lord allow this to happen? If the Lord loves me, why is he allowing this to happen? And I think what we need to do as the Christian community is really begin to address those things biblically and also uh, as people standing around these people and not shunning them or staying away from them. Because most of us don't have good answers. And yet we live in a world of sin. And the difference between the Lord's discipline and the sin of the world, most of us can't discern the difference between the two. Gentlemen, thanks. It's been great uh, be to, being together. I'm I'm excited when we can be in the studio, all packed in and laughing and seeing each other. Looking forward to that. Sounds <laughs> good. Thanks, yeah, Bill. Yeah, to you, Bill. That wraps Thank up. You so much. Guy Thank Talk. You, Thank you so much for uh, the questions and the input from listeners. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. And we'll take a little break when we come back. Dr. Greg Heddington will be my guest, uh, and, and Dr. Peter Kapsner is going to stick around for the first part of the show as well. So that's all ahead. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.